This is the My Weight What to Know podcast, where we talk to medical experts about the latest research on weight management and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. We have a very special episode for you with weight specialist, Dr. Mega Podar, about the things that can make it more difficult to lose weight and keep it off and what we can do about them. Dr. Podar, thanks so much for being here with us again. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Before we start talking about practical strategies for behavior change, I know it's important to you that people first understand the biology that may have undermined their best efforts in the past. So what do you want people to know about the way their bodies work when it comes to weight loss and weight gain? Absolutely. Thank you for asking me this question because it essentially is really explaining why obesity is a chronic disease. We know that obesity is largely inherited and it's inherited due to dysfunction in the brain. There's really two different areas of the brain that we focus on when we think about obesity. There's the appetite system. This is regulating basic drives for hunger and fullness. This is stimulated by peripheral hormones like leptin, ghrelin, GLP-1, made in our stomach and our intestine in response to food. They regulate right at our brain level to tell us whether we're hungry and when we're full. People living with obesity have higher levels of hunger hormones and lower levels of fullness hormones, especially after weight loss. So you can imagine when the appetite system is dysregulated, it's not working appropriately, it becomes very hard to reduce weight, but even harder to be able to keep it off. The other area of the brain that is a challenge in obesity is the reward pleasure of the brain. This is regulated by dopamine and opioid transmitters. We know that people with obesity have higher levels of activation in this area of the brain. So their reward, motivation to eat, drive to eat, even though they may not be hungry, is actually much higher than somebody who is at a lower weight. We also know that reducing weight actually increases this impulse. So really, we know that treatment needs to be focused on these two areas of the brain in order to be successful. Dr. Potter, two concepts that are central to understanding how and why we eat are wanting, which you've spoken a little bit about, and restraint. Tell us what those two terms mean and how they do affect our eating. So these two concepts, the balance between wanting and restraint, are probably one of the main drivers in obesity. Wanting is the motivation to go out and eat food. It has to do with the pleasure that we get from food and regulated in a neurotransmitter called dopamine. That's a happiness hormone. So wanting is what I call a triple threat. And it's a triple threat because it is subconscious, it's inherited, and it's part of our biology. So what do I mean by it's subconscious? This idea that our brain is telling us to go out and eat, even though we may not be hungry, is something that we don't even realize we're doing. If we don't realize we're doing it, it becomes very difficult to actually stop that behavior. And this is why counting calories or just eating less calories doesn't work because we don't really realize why we're eating in the first place. The second part of that triple threat is that it's inherited. So unfortunately, we don't get to decide how much wanting is ingrained in our system. Lastly, that part of the triple threat is that this is a biological drive. You know, 200 years ago, this concept of being motivated to seek pleasurable food and wanting was so, so important to our survival. 
if we didn't have that drive, it would be very difficult to go out and hunt and potentially get hurt or die just to seek food. And so this intense drive of wanting is needed for us to survive. And our biology really hasn't changed very much. What has changed is our environment. And so now we don't have a scarcity of food. We have access to hyper palatable, really tasty food that tends to be addictive, that's calorie dense and nutrient poor. Now this is balanced out by restraint. Restraint is really regulated in our frontal lobe. That's where all of our decisions are practically made. When we have obesity, we know that that executive function and that frontal lobe ability to, to stop, think about what we're doing and actually change the behavior or restrain ourselves from doing the behavior, that is much lower than somebody who doesn't have obesity. And so a lot of our principles in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy are meant to boost up that executive function and boost up our ability to restrain ourselves, stop, think about the behavior that we're doing, why we're doing it, where it came from, and then allow ourselves to change the thought to be able to actually change the behavior. So as you were describing wanting, I was thinking about a lot of the people we've interviewed who have said, you know, I've just always wanted more. I've always thought about food more than my friends, for example. And so I think what that is really speaking to is that kind of like genetic, inherited, subconscious drive to eat. So what I hear you saying is we can utilize tools such as CBT to ramp up our restraint to kind of counterbalance that wanting. Absolutely. You know, the, the reality is that when we say obesity is not in your control or this is not your fault, and we say that because we understand that your brain is driving so much of these behaviors. It is not as simple as just eat less food. It's the same as saying, if you're depressed, just be happy. Well, that's not a realistic treatment option because this is what your brain is biologically genetically programmed to do. This is also why the type of treatment you undergo matters. So if the treatment is not targeting wanting, it's unlikely to be successful long-term. Cognitive behavioral therapy, medications for weight management, and even bariatric surgery all improve wanting. Eating less and moving more actually increases wanting. And that's why we haven't seen that to be successful. All right, fatigue is another modulator that can increase wanting and decrease restraint. Why is that? So a lot of what we have difficulty with with fatigue is there is an overall increase in wanting. Again, our brain wants to go out and seek something that makes us feel better. And food tends to be a really easy access for our brain to be able to seek this. Now, when we are fatigued, in general, we have difficulty in the ability to restrain ourselves. So this is where our frontal lobe can no longer kind of overcome that desire to want to seek food. All of the sort of mechanisms that we have to pause and think about whether we're hungry or we're full, understand if there's a trigger out there that's making us want to eat food even though we're not hungry, all of those coping strategies that we tend to have that allow us to be higher in restraint are decreased when we have fatigue. So is ensuring that a person gets enough sleep something that you focus on as a weight management physician? So I think a lot of people have difficulty with sleep. 
but they often just describe sleep quantity. But really, we know that the difficulty with sleep related to weight is actually due to both sleep quality as well as quantity. When you have poor sleep or restricted sleep, your degree of wanting actually increases. We find that people sort of think about food more often, especially food that's more palatable. So things they tend to crave more often, usually sugary foods. We also know that poor sleep quality has actually been linked to poor diet quality. So it's not just necessarily feeling hungrier or eating more. The types of food you tend to eat when you have poor sleep quality actually tend to be less nutritious and often calorie dense. Interestingly, hunger is also higher when you don't sleep as well. There is a hormonal change that happens with poor sleep where our hunger hormones are actually higher and our fullness hormones are lower. So you can imagine, you know, you're participating in a dietary plan, you're sort of calorie counting or watching your portions. And if you're not sleeping well, actually sticking with that plan can be quite a bit higher. So, you know, in my program, we always talk about sleep because it can make such a difference to how successful you are with your weight management plan. Dr. Podar, another modulator is alcohol. Tell us how alcohol affects our desire for certain foods and our ability to exercise restraint. Well, you know, alcohol is a really interesting one because it's such a socially embedded phenomenon uh, where you're often going to parties or in certain social engagements and alcohol tends to be there readily. So not only is alcohol a calorie content, right? So often people don't realize how many calories they're actually ingesting when they're drinking two, three drinks a night. But alcohol is also a drug that is inhibitory. And so what that means is that frontal lobe, that ability to follow restraint models actually decreases. So when our brain is telling us we know that this type of food is not good for us, when we drink alcohol, the actual ability to restrain ourselves from eating that food goes down. There is also a link between alcohol intake and increase in wanting. So that motivation to eat food that's pleasurable, that particularly makes you feel good, when you tend to drink alcohol, that type of wanting behavior is actually increased. It just becomes harder to stick with the plan because that subconscious desire to want to eat that really sort of hyper palatable food is much higher and your ability to say no is actually lower. So interestingly, ADHD is considered a modulator. How can ADHD affect what we eat and the lifestyle changes we're able to put in place? We discuss ADHD with all patients in our program because we know that ADHD type qualities are associated with, again, increased wanting. People find that they are more highly motivated by their cravings and certain triggers in certain environments will make it very difficult for them to have restraint and be able to say no to certain types of foods. Interestingly, ADHD and binge eating disorder are actually highly connected. In fact, the treatment for both of these disorders is the same. And so we know that in binge eating disorder, that desire, that degree of wanting, that subconscious, uh, that's asking us to eat in response to a trigger, it tends to be much stronger in those that have ADHD. So it's something that I would encourage you to speak with your physician about if you feel like, you know, this is something that might be inhibiting you from being successful. 
So intense hunger, which usually happens when we skip meals, can also dramatically increase wanting and lower restraint. How often do you encourage the people you work with to eat? You know, I think it's a very individualized conversation because, again, we know that appetite and hunger hormones are very much an individual inherited biological phenomenon. So I would really say that each person is quite different. However, we do know that if you go for prolonged periods without eating, your body is naturally going to release more and more hunger hormones. So people do tend to overeat, and this is something that's been studied time and time again. And so what I tend to do is I ask the questions, how often are you eating throughout the day? What is your appetite like right before you sit down for a meal? You know, are you the type of person that doesn't want to eat breakfast or isn't hungry? But when you get to lunch, you're ravenous, you know, and what is the calorie intake that you're eating at lunchtime? And so those are the type of sort of individualized and personalized questions that really help me to understand, you know, is this prolonged period without eating a problem for this person or not? So physical activity is also on the list of modulators. How can exercise affect wanting and restraint? Exercise is a really interesting question because what we know about physical exercise is that people that exercise more don't necessarily lose more weight. And so when we lose that motivator of seeing weight loss in response to exercise, people will often ask me, well, what's the point? And so what we know about physical exercise is that you are able to decrease wanting with physical exercise. And so if we said that wanting is subconscious, inherited, and a biological phenomenon, those are three things you actually don't have very much control over. Physical exercise is very powerful to be able to actually reduce that. So if your brain is constantly saying, you know, what's my next meal? What am I going to eat after this? What's my next snack? What's in the cupboard? Often for people, when you engage in physical exercise, that chatter, that wanting, that motivation to eat, even though you're not hungry, can actually go down. Interestingly, you can also practice a higher degree of restraint. So that ability to sort of stop when you have a craving and say, oh no, I know that I'm not actually hungry. I'm eating in response to some sort of trigger that's in the environment. My brain is telling me to go out and eat even though I don't need to. I'm going to try and do X, Y, Z instead. Your ability to actually be successful at practicing that restraint, if you are more physically active, is actually going up. When you're less physically active and you're more sedentary, the data actually shows that your ability to do that is going down. People who are engaged in regular physical exercise, usually at least a moderate intensity, are able to regulate food behaviors more effectively. So this is really good news. I mean, we, we've talked about how wanting we have relatively little control over, but exercise is kind of one tool we can utilize to make exercising restraint a little easier. Exactly. So anything else that we haven't talked about that can affect our desire for food? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that we haven't talked about is other things like medications. You know, often I'll see somebody in my office who has been prescribed a medication that's increased their hunger or increase their cravings. They'll describe it as, you know, wanting to eat all the time, even though they have just eaten a meal. And sometimes it's actually medications that are promoting that behavior. So I would just encourage you to talk to your doctor if this is a new experience for you. Is there something that's changed in your life that we can easily change back 
that might have triggered some of these increases in wanting or decreases in our ability to restrain ourselves. Dr. Potter, you're the medical director of the Medical Weight Management Center of Canada, a virtual weight management clinic that delivers a tailored approach combining cognitive behavioral therapy and obesity medications when needed. Why is that the approach that MWMCC utilizes? We built MWM because we were seeing patients day in and day out really struggling with their weight and struggling with the behavioral therapy component. This is the hard work piece of obesity management. It's understanding our relationship with food, understanding that wanting is a subconscious inherited biological phenomenon. A lot of people with obesity, you know, come with negative past experiences and a lot of internalized weight bias. That's where they feel like they don't deserve treatment or that it's their fault that they're struggling with weight. And so that behavioral therapy piece, understanding obesity is a chronic disease, understanding the science, um, understanding wanting and restraint, that really was just not happening in obesity treatment. We encountered a lot of people who were on medications for weight management, but not actually getting the behavioral treatment. And so this is why we built MWM. We wanted a comprehensive you know, new standard of care in how to approach obesity to be able to give people the tools to not only be successful at reducing their weight, but actually feeling better, improve, improving body image, improving, you know, their relationship with food. Those are the principles for which MWM was built. So can seeing an obesity physician or going to a clinic like MWM help address those modulators we discussed earlier that may be getting in the way of a person's best efforts? A lot of people with obesity have struggled with a negative experience with a healthcare provider. And this is perhaps because that healthcare provider may not understand some of the nuances with obesity and even understand those modulators. So every obesity clinic should be asking about stress eating, should be asking about sleep and mood and depression. All of these things are going to impact your success with how you're able to manage your weight. You know, a lot of people who have started obesity medications or um, weight management medications, if you don't have a discussion on poor sleep quality and quantity, then those medications are not going to be as effective. You may not feel like you're able to overcome drives for wanting if sleep quality isn't improving. So those modulators are so important to define how successful you are with treatment. So you mentioned earlier that we can use CBT as a way to help us practice restraint more effectively. Give us an example of what that might look like. What does CBT stand for? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. The practice of restraint is really understanding those subconscious thoughts that we have when we're in a state of wanting. So I'll give you a perfect example. A lot of people will describe nighttime eating. And when they describe that, they say, I'm always hungry at nighttime. But what that actually is, is that inherited biological drive for wanting that has collided with an environment or a high-risk time period at nighttime. Why is that a high-risk time period? It's because over many, many years and days, uh, you may have in increased your calorie consumption or had a snack at nighttime. And now your brain is programmed to say, it's nighttime, I'm sitting on my couch, where's my snack? And so what does CBT do? It helps you identify that high-risk time period, the nighttime, helps you understand that your brain is programmed to want to eat something at that time, 
and then give you the tools to change that behavior. Changing that behavior means doing something differently at that time period, you know, being in a different environment, changing the stimulus and the trigger. This is really different from just saying, I'm just not going to eat at nighttime. I'm not hungry, so I'm not going to eat. That is very unlikely to be successful, just eating less. But understanding these concepts and giving you tools and strategies to be able to overcome them, that's is, that is the advantage of participating in CBT. So I know the approach at MWM includes frequent check-ins with physicians and registered dietitians too. How is that structure of consistent support helpful to people? We know that the more often you're seen in any weight management program, especially in that first sort of three to six months, the more successful you'll be to be able to keep that weight off long-term. All of our doctors and our dietitians are trained in CBT. So when you're seen every two weeks by healthcare providers that understand the science of obesity and understand how to help you with different modulators and coping strategies around behavioral therapy, we know that people tend to be successful more long-term, as well as have greater confidence to be able to keep their weight off. So it sounds like CBT is integral to the process at MWM and is incorporated even through dietitians, perhaps helping someone figure out how to make the food choices they want to make. Absolutely. It, and it's, it's also the ability to do what you're trying to do. So a lot of people will say, I know exactly what I need to do. I just can't do it. And the reason for that, I just can't do it, is not a knowledge problem. It's usually a biologic subconscious behavior that we don't actually know we're doing. And so that's what the dietitians and doctors in our program are helping you support. It's bringing to light, where did those behaviors actually start? Why did they start? What am I doing at that time that I can actually change? Unless we get down to the nitty gritty, we peel back those layers it's actually very difficult to be successful at the behavior change you're trying to do because you don't know why you're doing it in the first place. That's such a good point. I think there's we hear so often on our Facebook page, I know what I need to do, I just need to do it. And yet, you know, all of us have that experience of banging our head against the wall and dealing with that same problem over and over again. So getting that support to really break down the pieces of what's driving this behavior must be a huge game changer for the people that you work with. It's been so humbling to be part of this program because our patients have already shown that they are enjoying food again. They're enjoying their lives again. You know, that feeling of the weight of the world sitting on your shoulders because you're living with this, with this disease of obesity and you've never been supported. When you're sort of given that support and feeling that this is not your fault and that you're able to manage this long-term, that's something that is incredible. And it's not something that I get to see very often because most healthcare providers just don't have the resources and tools to be able to get there. So how might someone figure out if seeing an obesity specialist or going to a clinic like MWM is the right next step for them? In, at MWM, we've built in a physician overview call because we know that people living with obesity have experienced many negative experiences, especially in the healthcare setting. It's also really hard to trust another program. Most of our patients have already done something, you know, whether it's a commercial program, 
they've already experienced something and not succeeded because they're obviously searching for more effective treatment. And so what we've built in at MWM is the ability to call one of our docs, have an honest conversation, explain what the challenges are and see what they have to say. And if that resonates with you, then you sort of know that this program makes sense for you. Uh, and it's also helpful to be able to be confident that where you're spending your time and money is effective for what you need. Anything that we haven't covered that you think is really important for our audience to know, Dr. Podar? The only thing that I think we haven't talked much about is mood changes like depression as a modulator. And the only reason I bring this up is because obesity and depression is very much bi-directionally linked. And what that means is that people with obesity have higher rates of depression and people with depression have higher rates of obesity. And so this is something that we actually see very commonly in our weight management program. And the discussion around wanting and restraint is very much connected to depression. When you have untreated depression, wanting is going up. Your motivation to eat food that makes you feel good is much higher. And your ability to pause and practice restraint and be able to actually engage in CBT techniques is lower. And so a lot of what we do is questionnaires and tools to diagnose depression. Uh, if you feel like you have low mood and obesity, you absolutely need both of those things treated. Just being able to be treated for obesity and reducing your weight is not going to treat the depression. And so I would just encourage you to acknowledge if both of those things are present in your life, that both of those things need attention. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is such an important reminder and a very important PSA to deliver. Dr. Podar, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation as always. Thank you so much for having me. We will be back to you with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night. This podcast episode was sponsored by Novo Nordisk Canada. It was created independently by My Wait What to Know with no influence from Novo Nordisk.